Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to celebrate math in front of your students as a joyful, relevant, and inclusive subject. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Shelby Strong of New Orleans, Louisiana. Let's start by drawing a mental picture of a math person. Is this person a certain gender, race, or age? Are they dressed a certain way or speaking with a certain voice? When you think of a math person, does that person look and act like you? I've often heard my colleagues in the arts and humanities joke about not being math people, and I've definitely made that same quip myself, despite the fact that I was a decent math student. However, that changed when I started following Shelby Strong on social media and began asking myself what message these kinds of off-the-cuff remarks send to my students about who can be and who is good at math. Then, in December 2020, one of her tweets went teacher Twitter viral when she wrote, I'm so mad, y'all. Teachers who don't teach math, stop trashing our subject. Stop trashing it in front of us. Stop trashing it in front of the kids. You are being so disrespectful. Stop it. This led to a long thread, which I've linked to in the show notes, of discussion, some arguments, and teachers sharing examples of how they've seen this in action with their colleagues or even principals. Having interviewed Joanna Castellano in episode 32 about conceptual math and math anxiety in students, I reached out to Shelby to discuss what happens when that math anxiety persists into adulthood and those students become teachers and administrators. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with Agent Shelby Strong. Okay, Shelby, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Do you mind sharing? I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about teaching math and math culture in school. But before we get into that, do you mind sharing what your role in education is, who you are, how you got here? Sure. Um, So my name is Shelby Strong, and I was a teacher for eight years and recently left the classroom. Um, I taught secondary math the whole time. So my my baby, my favorite subject is Algebra 1, but I've taught different grade levels of middle school and high school. And I began teaching in the New Orleans area. Early in my career, I made a point of attending different conferences, different webinars, different sessions to try and learn as much as I could about teaching because I never planned on being a teacher. I was actually in college to become a uh, a psychologist, and I took a math course and fell in love, Just absolutely fell in love with these simple, beautiful proofs of things like, why is the sum of two odd numbers always even, or why is the product of two odd numbers always odd? And my professor at the time explained these things and led us to draw these conclusions ourselves in such a beautiful way, and I thought, why didn't I get that in school? 
why didn't anyone show this to me before? And so at that point, I decided, you know what? I really want other students to experience this and not have to wait until college, not have to wait until a course like this to get that sort of understanding. So that was really kind of the launch. And I, I dug into every single opportunity I could get my hands on, every conference I could travel to, every webinar I could sign up for, and started to present locally, first at the Louisiana Teachers Teacher Leader Summit in New Orleans, and then uh, did a webinar for AMLE, the Association of Middle-Level Educators, ended up presenting at their national conference, presented for our local Louisiana affiliate for NCTM, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and that really kind of took off. So once I left the classroom, I didn't want to leave education, so I spent some time doing some curriculum design, and now I am looking into consulting. Are you able to sustain your love of math even through consulting, or is that something you're just doing on your spare time, like quick Sudokus or something like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm actually in a grad program right now for K through eight math specifically. And part of the, the process is that I work with a partner teacher who is delightful. She's a second year teacher. She's wonderful. And I get to partner with her and work with her and her students. And so that kind of, it gets me my math fix. <laughs> I can still do some, some lesson planning and some, some pacing and looking at really neat lesson ideas or writing really worthwhile assessments, things like that. And she's actually the, she was what sparked that Twitter thread that blew up a few months ago. We were talking about just your know, various planning things. And then she paused and she said, can I just vent for a minute? And I said, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love venting. Give me all of your drama, please. And, and so she said, I try so hard to, to get along with my colleagues. I try so hard to connect with their subject matter, to find a way of working what they're doing into my classroom, to try and find a way of taking what I'm doing and making it relevant to them. And it hurts when they are just so dismissive. She said in the teacher's lounge the other day, somebody said to me, I've never used anything from eighth grade math or beyond in my adult life. So I don't understand why we even have to teach it. Jeez. And like basically called her irrelevant and was like, you're, you're, you serve no purpose. What you're teaching means nothing to your students. And I sat there speechless. Like this is your colleague. This is someone who's supposed to be a partner in education with you. How dare you? And so I, I posted the first tweet, which was just, you know, rage of stop trashing our subject because it's not the first time that I've heard of it happening. It's, it's certainly not the first time that, you know, I've had personal experience with, with colleagues, with administrators, with, you know, people who are in education having no problem whatsoever putting down math, not just in front of the students, but in front of us. I finished the phone call with her, told her, you know, your anger is justified. That's completely unreasonable. I have to hang up with you and go do this other thing. I'm going to call you back when I'm done. And the other thing that I had to go do was a PLC meeting. 
And it was very, it, the subject of the PLC meeting was about this idea of math genius and how it's a myth. And so it's something that's been circulating in the math community for a while now, kind of this myth of the math person. And what does it mean to be smart in math and kind of redefining those norms, redefining what a mathematician looks like, what it means to be strong at mathematics. And before, for a long time, it was being able to follow a procedure efficiently, being able to do mental math in your head quickly, being able to get answers right the first time. And that's changing. It's taking time, but it's changing. And people are starting to come around to this idea that math isn't about being right the first time. It's not about being able to do math quickly. It's about being able to do math deeply. And there's many people who are at the forefront of this movement, but it's so critical because it, it requires an entire rewrite of the math narrative as it exists in this moment. And almost every adult right now is going to have that conception that, that, that previous idea of what math was when they were a student. And it's so hard to overwrite that memory with what could be. And so now we're seeing, uh, like your previous guest that you had, where she talked about conceptual math, that movement is growing across the country. But parents and sometimes even administrators aren't seeing that because it's not their lived experience. And so if it's not something that they're entrenched in every day, like the classroom teachers are, then they really, they, they don't really understand how math is changing and how we are trying to prevent our students from that same pain that we went through when we were math students. So there's two threads that I wanna pull on there. One is, why do you think that that is a way that people try and connect, like an administrator joking about math with students? Like, do they assume that math is just universally difficult and therefore it's going to be uh, a way to connect? Like, we all wear pants, we all have difficulty with math. Is it like, is it a way to still appear smart because you, if you're bad at math, well, everybody is, but you can still be a smart, like, why is it that that's always a subject that we go to? I think it's, I think at the heart of it, it's fear. I think it's a fear of, I don't want anyone to know my weaknesses. I don't want anyone to know my vulnerabilities. So if I get ahead of them and I call it out myself first, then you can't use it as a weapon against me. And that's a very common human reaction. I remember uh, about six years ago, I had a student who was, you know, your typical class clown. And one day I had to pull him outside and I was like, listen, I need you to be honest with me. All of this that you're doing, I've seen you be brilliant. Are you afraid of something? And, and you know, we kind of had this back and forth conversation where he kind of admitted to me that every time that he says that he doesn't know, every time that he gets an answer, not just wrong, but outrageously wrong, on, it's on purpose. And it's a way of deflecting. And if I am obviously wrong, if I am playing at being stupid, 
then maybe people won't notice that I think I might be. Maybe people won't notice that I'm not as confident in this. And so it's a, we see this a lot with comedians as well. There's comedians who really specialize in self-deprecating humor and it's a defense mechanism. And so I think that that's a lot of it is that there's a lot of, math anxiety is a, is a trauma almost, not almost, it is. And because it's a trauma, we have trauma responses that sometimes we don't even, they're, they're not even conscious. And a lot of the replies to that thread were from people who say, oh yeah, I've given replies like, oh, I'm not a math person without even thinking. And so maybe I need to be more conscious of my thought because it's something that I was doing to protect myself and I'm not realizing how much harm it's replicating. Where do you think the origin of this, well, I'm not a math person comes from? I think it, it reaches back, I mean, even as far as the Greeks, you've got men congregating around and sharing, you know, philosophy and mathematics and everything with each other, and the women weren't permitted, but, but it's a very narrow point of view because the Greeks are the civilization that we tend to point to first when it comes to things like, you know, mathematics and philosophy, but they certainly weren't the only ones. And you have other cultures, other civilizations that do value mathematics and do value women. And over time, largely in part due to either patriarchy or white supremacy, you get those stories being pushed down and silenced and forgotten because they don't serve the purpose. And the purpose is to keep basically white dudes in power. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell women that they're not good at math, if you tell black students that they're not good at math, and then you don't provide them with the support or the structure that they need to be successful at math, then you can point and say, see, told you. Told you you weren't good at math. But then you haven't provided them with what they need to be successful. And Part of it is because of the way that we have distilled mathematics in the last 100 years or so to make it digestible. So where you see this emergence of procedures and getting the right answers and follow the steps and do what you're told and you'll get an answer. Don't ask questions. You know, there's this famous little rhyme. Ours is not to reason why, just invert and multiply for dividing fractions. <laughs> how awful of a message to be sending to learners to ours is not to reason why excuse me that uh, ours is to reason why that is our entire purpose that's entire being and it's so it's so frustrating to see where education has come from with this idea of you know these big thinking and you know let's push the boundaries of what we know and let's examine you know, what could be and then to reduce it down to this pitiful nothingness of just follow this rule, follow this procedure, shut up and do what you're told, basically. And one of the things that really both amuses and angers me about math is that because we've reduced it down to this procedural, there's only one way of thinking, there's only one right answer, math is universal across cultures and languages. What's amusing to me about that is it's a lie. <laughs> because you've got this long storied history of mathematicians kind of 
bucking the norms, basically. And you've got, you know, people who are being expelled from their universities uh, because they are teaching Cartesian mathematics. You've got people who are being you know, drowned at sea because they accidentally proved irrational numbers and that meant that the gods were fallible. And so the rational, if irrational numbers exist, then it's a, you know, it's a slight against the gods. And so they, he got thrown overboard and drowned. You know, the, you've got Lewis Carroll, the author of, of Alice in Wonderland, was a mathematician. Lewis Carroll was a pen name. Charles Dodgson, he was a mathematician. And so large chunks of Alice in Wonderland are actually 1800s shade. He is, he is throwing fellow mathematicians under the bus for the absurd idea of integers, of negative numbers. That whole tea party scene where they're talking about uh, the teacups and you can't have, how can I have more if I haven't had any? Well, you certainly can't have less. All of that is a critique against the idea of negative numbers, which were just coming into popularity and fashion around that time. That's fascinating. And it also just completely busts open a common refrain that I, I hear when I talk to teachers about collaboration and integrated subject matters, where they're like, you know, I can see how history and science can collaborate and social studies and English can collaborate. Maybe even you could do science and like read a novel, but what are you going to do with math? And like, there it is. That's where math comes in. But I, I don't think that that is a common framework that, that teachers tend to have. So then when a colleague says, I'm not a math person, or why are we still teaching this? It should just be teaching kids how to fill out their income tax forms, because that's all they ever are going to use math in their life for. Like, do you have a, a pat answer for, for math haters? What's the point of poetry? What's the point of Shakespeare? What's the point of fiction? If the purpose of reading is to convey information, then we should teach students how to read instruction manuals, and that should be the only literature that they're exposed to. There's no, there's no beauty in reading. There's no, there's no joy in reading. I'm not a, I don't read good. I don't word good. I'm not an English person. Those responses would be laughed out of the building, right? And if you, if you dared to insult somebody's favorite author to their face, you are basically inviting them to throw down <laughs> because English teachers have a lot of feelings and a lot of opinions about their favorite authors. And it, it, it feels personal. It feels like an attack. And yet that same mindset doesn't seem to apply to them about when they come at our subjects. And it's not just English teachers. Like I'm, I'm singling out English teachers here because in my experience, that's been the worst perpetrators. But there are things that sometimes that we do for the beauty of it. Poetry and music, like music serves no purpose, but it's beautiful and it's, it's moving and it does something to your soul the way that you know, a really good meal does, the way that a really inspiring piece of writing does, the way that a beautiful painting might. Mathematics can have that same effect on the soul. It can have this beautiful stirring of emotions and it's not something to be feared. So now I, I'm so inspired by that. That's really beautiful. 
When I first contacted you because of the thread, I was um, soon after having a conversation with a fellow podcaster, Natalie, who does the amazing Edu Crush podcast. And we were talking about something. And then she said, because of what we were talking about it, like, well, I'm not really a math person. And so for the first time, I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on this one. And I was like, well, what makes you say that? Like, I'm curious because she is one of the most like brilliant analytical thinkers that I know. And she talked about how, and this was, I don't know if it's a Canadian thing because we're both from Canada, but we used to do these things called mad minutes where we were given like those worksheets and then there was a timer and you had to go through as many of the the sums basically as you could and like how much anxiety that used to give her. And like, Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you're really bad at mad minutes. And that was just the, like that inkling of like, Oh, but if someone's really bad at like running sprints, we don't say they're a bad athlete if they're like really great at shot put, but we tend to really universalize math. And that is, the number one response I get from people when I ask, when did you first believe that you were bad at math or what made you hate math or any variant on that question? The majority of the responses that I and others receive is time tests, time, like these little timed drills like mad minute, because there's this pressure of you have to get questions right immediately. And if you're not, if you fail at these assignments, well, then you're just bad at math. And it is so harmful because it it reduces math down to, you know, you have to be great at arithmetic, mental arithmetic. You have to have these memorized pieces of information in order to be a successful mathematician. And frankly, it's just wrong. (laughs) It's, It's false. Can I then, now that we've opened this Pandora's box... We'll be here for five hours. I just, I just want you to know, I will talk about math all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we break it down into like what the actual skills of math are? Because I realize as you talk, like calculation must be just one of a, a very large part of a mosaic of what math is. Like what is the skills that you're trying to bring out in your students? So I want to grab a book real quick. I need to find it. It's uh, Becoming the Math Teacher You Wish You Had. Let me see. Because there's a really great intro to it that I think is relevant to our conversation. Okay. So Tracy Zager wrote this amazing book called Becoming the Math Teacher You Wish You'd Had. And in the beginning of the book, she talks about her mother. And she talks about how her mom did not believe that she was a math person. Uh, You know, there was a a scene at the breakfast table and people are talking about math and her mom goes pale. And she always, the mom always described herself as bad at math, not a math person. And from Tracy's perspective, she was like, how could that be? My mom manages payroll. She manages expenses and taxes. She designs things and she creates her own patterns and scales them up and down. She, you know, built a stable and needed the 3D geometry to create the the blueprint and then erect it. And when she asked her mom about this, her mom said, 
what I do isn't math, it's money. That's entirely different. Huh. She asked your mom, you know, what is math? And her mom said, math is when they hand you a sheet of paper and it has a word problem you don't understand on it. And that this perception that she had of herself was created, you know, from her teachers, from her own father, from all these people around her, like you mentioned earlier, giving her the instruction of you are not a math person. You are not good at math. Women are not good at math. And it it took that one-on-one conversation with her own daughter to open her, her perspective and her mindset to even begin to entertain the idea that maybe I am good at math. Maybe math is more than what others have told me it is to the point where they were later shopping for TVs and she was having a conversation about the ratios of the TV sizes with the salesman. And, you know, she was all prideful. She was like, yes, I understood that. It was a math conversation and I wasn't scared. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that has to happen first. But before we get into skills, before we get into, you know, kind of like the, the checklist of what is and is not mathematics, it has to be this, this breakdown of what math isn't, which it's not, it's not rule following. It's not memorized sums or times tables. It's not, you know, this need to be right and this need to be independently right without collaboration from others. What math is, is it's an exploration of logic. It's problem solving. It's taking a really curious noticing or wondering and asking questions about it. And then when you get the answers to those questions, it should spark more questions. And it's continuing kind of pulling at the threads to unravel a mystery. That's all math has ever been. It's, you know, why... People looked at the stars and wondered what was out there and whether we were at the center or whether we centered around something else, you know, how our planets moved, all of these great big questions that people have had for centuries, for millennia, they all come down to wondering and then figuring out ways to follow those wonderings. We talked mostly about how there tends to be very gendered ideas around math, but you also mentioned that there tends to be racial ideas around math where certain racial groups are considered to do more poorly in math, which is usually our students of color or black students, Latinx students, and then Asian kids are presumed to be math geniuses. And then, you know, the white kids slide in between there. What are some ways that this is being challenged? And my first thought comes to those word problems, because those seem like they expect a lot of social capital that not all kids have in order to solve them in the first place. For sure. Um, I think that there's a lot of work being done. If you look at the hashtag Black and Math on Twitter, there is a really strong swell of support for folks who have traditionally been left out of the conversation and excluded to reclaim their voice and to say, no, we're here, we've always been here, and we're not going to be quiet, we're not going to get out of the way. And they are. there's a lot of folks in the Twitter sphere and in, in the general kind of world who are really making a push for let's 
pay attention to how we talk about things. Let's pay attention to whose voice we center and whose voice we uplift and whose voice we allow to take up more space than others. And I think that, you know, yes, things within the classroom, like word problems or who gets called on, those things are important too, but also individual actions are not enough to uproot systemic problems. And so it has to be broader. It has to be looking at, you know, district-wide who is being placed into honors classes versus basic remedial classes, who is being suspended more frequently and being kept out of the classroom and kept from an education. And I see the work of organizations like uh, Teaching Tolerance, EduColor, and even kind of um, from another perspective, Disrupt Texts, who had a really big moment recently. Um, we have a lot to learn from those movements and from those organizations and from the people leading them because it's not just one subject area. It's not just one moment. And the more that we kind of silo things into subject-specific areas, the more we miss out on an opportunity to learn from others. And so the disrupt text movement is about disrupting basically the canon, which is all those old dead white dude writing. That Twitter fight got dark and deep. And I've, I mean, I've talked on the show before about like my own experience in a staff room, like basically yelling back and forth with other socials teachers about the canon and what it is and is it worth teaching? What is the canon of math that people are trying to disrupt? Is that just like the mad minutes? It's so funny that you say that because when you mentioned about history, I think about how history is probably having its own moment, right? With um, with Nicole Hannah-Jones and the, the 1619 Project, you know, where this, this reckoning of, once again, whose voice gets centered and whose story gets told. And so I think, you know, English is seeing it, history is seeing it. I think math needs to see it as well, where the most famous example might be the Pythagorean theorem. Historically accredited to Pythagoras, but there may be evidence that Pythagoras himself might not have come up with the Pythagorean theorem, it might have been one of his students who were called Pythagoreans. And, and while Pythagoras is doing his thing in Greece, other folks have simultaneously developed the same theorem elsewhere. But his is the one that gains traction and gains momentum. And, you know, that there's so much history of math that gets ignored or overlooked because it didn't come from white culture. And so I think that that's, that, that's the big thing. Um, one project that a lot of teachers like to do is they ask their students to draw a mathematician. And most of the drawings that you get back are old white dudes. By reintroducing who can do math, who are these big names, you know, it's not just, yes, you've got your, your Oilers and your and your Newtons and you, yes, those folks exist. We know their names. Why do we know their names? Who else made valuable contributions 
that's who's been ignored. One woman who I absolutely admire who's doing a lot of work in this area is Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez. She's kind of leading this movement on rehumanizing mathematics. And that is part of the of the center of her work is who has been overlooked and like what norms do we have in mathematics that are steeped and centered in white supremacy and and that kind of that nad minute thing that we were talking about earlier that kind of plays into it like which skills we value and why we value them that there's a much bigger conversation there that is starting to happen but everyone kind of you you start talking about white supremacy or racism and people get their backs up. And it kind of happened this summer where several of us got targeted by harassment influencers who were outraged that we had the audacity to question math's you know, universal objectivity or the potential lack thereof. And it was very scary for a while to see really brilliant people come under fire from racist, misogynistic, homophobic mobs, basically, all because we had the audacity to say maybe math is subject to human influence like every other subject is. But it's perfect perfect how dare you <laughs> yeah and i think it's because we don't like with other subjects like with history we don't reckon with the fact that math is imperfect in the k-12 classroom we don't really acknowledge that math did not appear you know carried down on a sunbeam perfectly complete from the heavens <laughs> like it it was something that was invented or discovered, you, know, you can have the invention versus discover conversation all day, but at the end of the day, like with all things, it was interpreted by humans. And so human biases, human you know, pre preconceptions are going to influence this body of work, no matter what. And to ignore that and to pretend that that's not happening is foolish, quite frankly. Um, and so I think that that's in order for us to have that conversation as adults, it kind of it almost has to begin as kids, and it has to require an open-mindedness, an ability to consider a reality other than your own. So I know there's going to be teachers that teach math or are generalist teachers and math is part of their curriculum and they want to find out more about disrupting the the math world or those who have just interest in finding out more how can people follow you and find out more about what you're doing well i would recommend my twitter feed but i can't guarantee that my math <laughs> that math is the central subject there um i'm a human being and because I am a wholly actualized human being, there's more 
that I want to talk about than just math sometimes. So people are more than welcome to follow me on Twitter at Snuffleupagus. It's like Snuffleupagus from Sesame Street, but with an E instead of a U. I also have an account on LinkedIn, LinkedIn Shelby Strong. And very, very recently, this is kind of like my big announcement here on this podcast, is I now have a website, which is strongermath.com. And you get in touch with me there. Well, Shelby, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. And I, I feel like you've opened my eyes to an area of teaching that I'd been a little bit blind to before. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me for the conversation. I think that having having awkward conversations, having conversations that maybe we don't feel super confident about going into, those are the conversations where we learn best. And so I... I try to do that myself as often as possible. And I think that that's, that's the way of the future. That's the way forward. It, that's the way to, to kind of heal the wrongs of the world, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. June 27th, join us for Edupodlooza. There will be over a dozen edupodcasters. Listen for some rhythm and rhyme. That's a poetry slam, boys and girls. Roundtable discussion. Just some teachers talking about teaching and laughing and having a good time. Role-playing games. Oh, yeah. For you nerds out there, you know you're going to like that stuff. Radio drama. Dum-dum-dum-dum. And really funny people. At least really funny looking, if nothing else. 1 to 9 on June 27th, Eastern Standard Time. We will be live streaming. There will be links. We'll put it on the Twitter. We'll make sure that you know where it is. Follow us at Unprocast if you're not already, because that's probably going to be the easiest way to know when it's going live. June 27th. Free up your calendar now. Thank you.